Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Sleigh bells that jingle. Sleigh. Just days before. We're just days away. We're days from, away. From the big holiday yeah. impact smashing into us. Do you uh, hear what I hear? And it's it's Santa. Yeah. He's Do you here. hear what I hear? I always thought there's there's so many ominous holiday songs. Do yeah. you hear what I hear? Is incredibly yeah. creepy, and so yeah. is just you know I hear the bells, so many bells, etc. Yeah. Et it's a lot of it's a very like it's a very bell forward holiday, and it's all very oriented toward a winter wonderland. Growing yeah. up in Texas, and mm. I'm sure you growing up in Santa Monica, there was always a weird disconnect between like it doesn't snow here. No, it it could be seventy five degrees on Christmas Day. Yeah, it did, but it feels like Christmas. It's it's it feels like the holidays. The important thing is that this is our holiday episode. Yes, such as it is, and and what we chose to do this time is this time being our first time, uh, we chose to watch a movie. Yep, you and me. Yep, and we chose to talk about it. Yep. My name is Stephen Jackson. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. This is... Journos. Journos. So yeah, Journos today, holiday edition. The holiday edition, which is also kind of holiday edition part two, because the first, last episode, we also told people that was the holiday spectacular. That was the so, holiday spectacular. Yeah, yeah, so this is just the holiday edition, not to be confused with the preceding holiday spectacular, which yes. if you haven't checked out, go ahead Go dive into uh, the podcast app, the, the Apple or the Spotify, wherever you get the podcast, and listen to the last one. We did something fun. Today, though, we are going to be talking about Adam McKay's recent satir- satirical film, Don't Look Up. Yeah, so I sort of had the wild idea to do a let's go watch a movie and then let's talk about it on the episode, and that seemed like a good idea. So you and I went and saw it. It was the first time I had been to a theater since the whole pandemic began. Yeah. Everybody was masked. Honestly, the, probably the last time, but yeah. we'll get to that later. Yeah. The couple yeah. next to us was extremely loud. Oh, um, gosh. They were yeah, awful. they were narrating everything. Yeah. So people really have lost all ability to... Yeah, nothing got by them. Nothing got by Not- them. <laughs> the one loved hummingbirds and told everybody <sighs> that he loved hummingbirds, yeah, and, and she agreed. It was amazing. So we watched the movie, and that inspired... Some some deep dives in some other directions, wouldn't you say, Stephen? There were yes. some themes and some issues that came up that caused us to embark on further investigation. Indeed, uh, in that, that further those further investigations uh, included uh, you going out and talking to a guy who's getting into the business of uh, selling. Uh, plots of land or the mineral rights to asteroids. Um, we also uh, started thinking a bit about family and uh, sort of the general spirit of the holidays in the role that food and uh, plays in this sense of togetherness. And then, um, you know, it, it we couldn't help but think and uh, turn our attention toward um you know, this Omicron business uh, that is sort of jostling up uh, what everyone believed was going to be this um, sort of return to normalcy um, in terms of the holidays, which, of course, uh, it is anything but. Yeah, well, let's get into it. Um, Don't Look Up, the latest movie by Adam McKay, Adam McKay previously of Anchorman and Talladega Nights, long-term partner of Will Ferrell. Apparently, they have sort of gone their separate ways. McKay has been kind of forefront of the American comedy scene, the sort of American dude comedy scene. Um, And 
he's always great. I mean, you know, I was like, okay, you can, I, I liked those things fine. But to me, he really started doing something very special when he directed, wrote and directed The Big Short, which was about the 2008 financial crisis based on the book by Michael Lewis, which was a really strange kind of structure for a thing because it was a nonfiction event that the characters were all real people. Mm-hmm. And he, he arranged it in such a way that it was sort of like a comedy documentary but everything was acted and reenacted it was it was so it was it was great um but it was also very dense i found Mm -hmm. uh you know for something that's uh, was billed as as a comedy and one thing that i thought was interesting about the big short was uh concepts and things were so complicated that they had to do those sort of uh inserts or cutaways of people like brad pitt you know speaking directly to the camera about like what what's actually happening what the hell's going on yeah Yeah. i appreciated it because as you know and as we have certainly discussed on this show for a long time i've had a fascination and obsession uh, uh, an anxiety about the fact that journalism as we know it is is evolving and in some of the old forms traditional forms are dying away so one solution is how do you import journalism how do you import the important messages into other forms and i think Comedy, of course, is a big yeah. one with The Daily Show and so on. And this was a good way, I thought, to cover this very complicated topic and turn it into sort of a mainstream movie that sure. was also very funny. Yeah, no, and and I think that's, um, you know, that that leads directly into what, you know, appears to be the mission of uh, Don't Look Up, right? That um, it, it it's the biggest story of our times um, and... The climate change and the impending, you know, ecological Armageddon, and it, you know, folks are trying to figure out how to write about that, and and folks are trying to get figure out how to get that message across to people so that it sticks and, um, and people care, and make people care, make it sort of wriggle itself into that uh, your your neurons and into that emotional center, so it just embeds itself as this idea that that's calling you to act to you know save the environment or actually start caring about, you know, the fact that we are in the biggest existential crisis that the species has ever faced. So what 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 does McKay do? He writes this movie uh, um, together with a famous journalist. David Sirota. So the plot of Don't Look Up, two scientists, one played by Jennifer Lawrence and the other played by Leonardo DiCaprio, discover a comet is hurtling toward Earth. It's going to smash into the Earth, destroy it in six months. Yeah. They freak out. So then it's sort of this progression of we have to tell somebody, we have to do something about it. And there are spoiler alerts here, folks. So don't tell us that we didn't tell you. Go on. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The world uh, may potentially end in six months, 14 days, and some number of hours. So it's sort of this, uh, this, this odyssey of going from one large, powerful entity to another to try and warn the world. First, they go to the president, played by Meryl Streep. She's sort of a, 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 a... collage of trump and oh and uh the alaskan how quick, yeah. how soon we forget sarah palin yeah she's kind of basically true. if sarah palin became president it's kind of that's her that's right yeah. yeah yeah very very and and her son is jonah hill um she doesn't care so then they go to the proxy for the new york times which is called the new york herald herald yeah they run some stories about it there's no real response. They look at the social media pickups and they find that nobody cares. That gets them, however, onto a morning show. The morning show is with Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry. Um, 
and their interest lies in other places. Tyler Perry's interested in whether there's life on another planet. Kate Blanchett is interested in Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Until the midterms, the president is involved in a scandal. She says, we got to distract people's attention. Let's do a whole let's save the world thing. Let's destroy the comet. Everybody gets excited about it. Um, they have this whole mission accomplished style George Bush on a ship thing. We're going to send these rockets up and blow up the comet with this technology developed by this uh, billionaire tech inventor. Yeah, sort of like a weird, also another amalgam of like uh, sort of Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and Gates, like sort of these very um, you know, particular people uh, who have you know all the power and money in the world. That's right, yeah, extremely powerful. Um, played by the wonderful Mark Rylance. Um, so they're going to send it up. There's this very inspirational Armageddon movie style scene where all the rockets go up and then this billionaire calls the president into another room and all of a sudden all the rockets turn back they can't figure out why turns out that the billionaire finds out that there are potentially untold wealth in the asteroid and if we can instead bring it back to earth we can mine it and everybody will make a bunch of money so the original plan is scrapped and then it's sort of just a countdown um as the the comic gets closer and closer kate the female scientist played by jennifer lawrence sort of spirals out and takes up with timothy chalamet who's a young punk skater um leonardo dicaprio his star is on the rise he becomes more of a media figure takes up with kate blanchett and as the end nears they sort of reconnect with some of the things that are very important the comet appears in the sky uh, a pop star played by ariana grande uh, sings a song, and they all get together. The main characters get together at the end for dinner, uh, and then the world ends. Yeah, that's that was good. Oh, that that was quick, man. So many things come up, and I think that uh, in, in this film, um, and I think that McKay um, in Soroka, Soroka, right? Adam Soroka, Soroda, Soroda, Soroda. I think they both do a really good job of pointing out some of just the nasty bits of our current. Um, global but really american condition um you know a a big theme obviously that you and i really liked about this was the role that the media must play in informing the public of these disasters and um that it actually one of the reasons that this movie was created is that mckay and sirota uh were having a conversation about the media and how their sort of lackadaisical approach to this climate change uh issue and one of them said to the other you know people wouldn't even care if there was a convert heading directly towards earth yeah sirota said that and mckay like any good artist his antenna went up and he said let's let's see what this let's see how this plays out one point i'd like to make is that in the movie nothing mattered about this story um when it was laid out in its most complex and accurate form so it was only until this big idea began to get distilled into these very basic simple concepts that um anybody really cared or started paying attention so um you know you can watch this sort of funnel occurring from the scientists saying exactly what's going on all the way down to basically the memification of this story and 
then that's when people sort of started having really strong opinions about it. And obviously that there was two very distinct sides to the issue. Some people were very much um, pro saving the earth and other people were um, just sort of swept up in the propaganda of um, the fact that mining this asteroid was going to actually create more jobs. And then basically it's a right versus left thing. Both of these camps adopted uh, opposing slogans, one saying, uh, you know, just look up, and then the other one saying, don't look up. Uh, And then those were even further simplified into uh, pins that had arrows pointing up and arrows pointing down. And obviously, we can all see the allegory between American politics today and Trump and and any kind of right-wing sort of um, refrain about, you know, oil and fracking and all of that. And it's like, well, I care about jobs. And, you know, but the, it, it, it it's all kind of flying in the face of the fact that who cares about a job if there's no planet to work in. Um, but, uh, the, but, but really what's happening here is that um, the film shows that the media and rather people's consumption of the media is entirely hinged upon their ability to um, grasp things quickly and make ideas big and make ideas simple and then something happens right well and and to the the bias of the journalists i have a big problem with depictions of journalists in media uh it tends to be that a journalist comes in and serves the role of you know a private detective or yeah. you know or, or some kind of do good or it's always you know the the plot is you have to find out what's really going on and so that's kind of the motif that goes into goes into effect and you know often what being a journalist is is you know going through a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of boring stuff and then being edited by an editor and like you know what's the right headline and and so there's all that stuff it tends to not be depicted very well. Um, David Sirota is a very accomplished investigative journalist, so he had a very strong idea of, of how this should look. And so I feel like the the journalists were balanced well, right? The the idea that they're all doing good work. You know, the ones who work for the Herald, which is again the New York Times proxy. Like they're doing good responsible work and they put it out there and then, you know, but they're also slave to having these metrics of shareability and stuff, right? So there's this reminder that, oh, yeah, at the end of the day, this is a business. And it's a business that's more and more based on subscription and therefore more and more based on audience response. And so you sort of have this lowest common denominator. And then the TV show, the morning show, then is just, you know, news as entertainment and there's no real value. And it's like, what's the thing that's going to be the most fun to talk about in this overly lit space with these two people? Yeah. Um, and half of the people in the movie have capped teeth, which is just a sort of recurring <laughs> that, yeah, gag. That was an interesting uh, um, observation on your end. Yeah, just yeah. there's... Once you were, see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, it's terrifying. So there's there's that tension between your job as a journalist to send a message and figure out the best way to send it, but also like to choose what message to send. And for climate change, which is the parable that they're communicating here, the problem is always it's it's far too complex. It's far too big. It's far yeah. too depressing. Um, the change will be the, the, the change towards good will be far too incremental. Right. And then the people who will be threatened by it uh, tend to have a huge financial interest in preventing those changes from being made. Yeah. Vis-a-vis the the client the 
you know, fossil, fossil fuel, fuel companies and, yeah. and, you know, big industry and stuff like that. So you have a hard time with it. That's, um, that's a really good point. In, in the case of Don't Look Up, this big message, the way that they want to a- approach this big message is through satire and through comedy, because that is a form of, you know, that makes it more palatable, right? It's a spoonful of sugar. You kind of deliver this big idea um, in a funny, smart, quick way, and hopefully that's going to stick. So then there's this idea of, you know, comedy being this tool for good, satire being this tool for good, because it can point out the nasty bits about who we are in society with the hopes that um, it will affect people and um, some change will be brought about by these realizations that happen through this way of telling a big, important story. So, Do you you think, I mean, the the question that that circulates around this movie and also kind of around our show and The Daily Show and comedy and news in general is... And then the, also satire is, do you think that satire can make a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I do, but I'm not sure it makes a difference for the people that that need to change. I mean, you know, John Stewart crafted like the most epic burns of Republicans of all time, right? He's like the undisputed champion of being able to really like nail people um, in their wrongdoing in this really fun super hyper clever next level way um like and in theory to to kind of get past the partisan talking points you know yes the, the comedy is supposed to be an we're not left we're not right yeah. we're 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 calling out hypocrisy stupidity where we see yeah. it that's yeah. our job as jesters tricksters and yeah, yeah je- the just the court jester like sort of uh um, analogy is really good there and i think um so but to your question does satire work you know it's I don't know if satire uh, pulls us out of an echo chamber. Um, I think that people like me and you are going to laugh at, you know, um, satire in that is directed at sort of the opposing political parties um, in such a way that we're just going to, it's going to be this thing like, oh yeah, that's a really great joke. Oh yeah, that really, that was clever. And you kind of get that endorphin rush when those two connections are made and you're like, oh, whoa, that's the best slickest metaphor I've heard today. But um, I don't know if a movie like this, which is is really going to make um, any kind of fossil fuel businessman or somebody like um who is like staunchly on the right side of the right side of politics have any kind of like come to jesus moment about uh climate change i i don't know if it's going to cut through all that noise and kind of get in hit them in this special inner place um yeah i'm not sure i guess yeah yeah, i mean i don't incremental you know it's sort of it needs to be i mean we didn't ever talk about climate change in a public forum for a long time, even though the news was out there. I mean, the yeah. news has been out there since I believe the late seventies and, you know, and then it became a topic in a more profound way, you know, 15 years yeah. ago. So, I mean, I think there's an idea of like chipping away at it. And well, I what was that? Is... What's that old uh, Michael Jackson, like heal the world. I mean, that came out in with all with never with all like the, 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 the star studded. That's cast. right. Yeah. All of the, yeah, that one and, and, and they, farm aid. We are the yeah. world. Yeah, we are, we the, are world. the world. I mean, and, like, we're, and I, we're still not the world yet. We're, we're not even close. We are at no. best a uh, fractured uh, hunk of minerals 
yeah. you know, sort of revolving around a ball of gas, man. But here, here, Here's a thought. Like, I'm not sure if satire works, but I do feel that we need to do it, right? Like, maybe it's like one of those things. Like, sure, it might not be, it, it, it might not, like, push, you know, was it push the needle, move the needle? What is it? Uh, it, dep- it depends on the tool you're using. Okay, yeah. so in this case, yeah. what, is it going to either push or move the needle? Right. Um, maybe not, but... Uh, you know, things like The Daily Show and movies like this do need to come out because um, yeah. it's part of the, the larger conversation and, right. frankly, the part of the conversation that I want to take part in. Yeah. I think I think having just been in Texas visiting family for the holidays and embarking on some of these extremely fraught conversations with the more conservative yeah. members of my family, you encounter these talking points that would come up about unions or George Soros or whatever, where it's like these topics come out of nowhere and yeah. they don't seem to have anything to do with any of the actual solutions that we're trying to get at either. Soros in the converse- came up? Soros came up. Never heard him brought up before. That, that's like, hey, 2019 called. They want their conspiracy back. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was so strange because, you know, if we're talking about local politics or, or whatever... <laughs> You think Soros um, has a hand in the in the San Antonio That was sort of the politics. yeah. I mean, that was sort of the 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 idea that there is this that each side thinks the other one has some sort of conspiracy going yeah. on. And and to me, what was interesting about it was that you would bring this up in a serious way. And for me, I'm like George Soros really is a thing we need to be worried about. Like that's a, that's a threat in some way to the fabric of American society. But what it told me was, oh yeah, we really are such products of story. Yeah. And if you immerse yourself in a story, you know, and that story is shaped by a news agency or a newspaper or a political party or whatever, that's the world that you live in. And it, mm-hmm. it's so profound to me to see that from the outside because I am a visitor to, you know, like, you know, I'm a visitor to various types of media. But, you know, the idea of where conservative media is, which doesn't really resonate with me. Yeah. I sort of step in and I'm like, oh, this is the language that you speak now. <laughs> And, um, you know, and, and it was, it was so interesting to then reflect on that while we were thinking about this movie that, you know, if I play this movie, the funny stuff will get through, but I, you know, I don't know that it's going to change anybody's, uh, approach to, or opinions on the kind of core issues. But that said, putting that stuff into the environment, putting more stuff like that into the environment, more stories like this more comedy, more ways of having the conversation. I think it's that that sort of incrementally yeah. shifts shifts In- things one way or another for for good or ill. You yeah, know? they're all part. Yeah, it's all like they're all sort of tributaries to this like larger thing, right? And I yeah. think that that um in so in that way we should do it. And it's just nice to laugh, man. It's just not, it was so nice like we went out yeah. to that movie um and we we ate at the apple pan first. We ate cheeseburgers. And, yeah. and we, you know, we ate like cheeseburgers and fries and then like went to a movie and then, you know, it got, all started like, to feel sort of normal. And I think another large theme in the movie that I think really connects to the world we live in today and our current condition is this uh, f- the, the, the problematic partnership between government and, you know, kind of private industry and mm-hmm. um, how... Also, the sort of mandate of 
private industry and the mandate of you know a capitalistic enterprise is to find places to make a profit and uh that of course happened in this movie when uh they decided to not just blow up the asteroid outright um and save the world just just for the sake of saving the world they wanted to do this sneaky little trick where they were actually going to send these uh drones onto the asteroid that were going to break it up into small pieces but also collect trillions of dollars of rare earth metals and things like that that live in this asteroid to uh make you know trillions and trillions upon trillions of dollars uh which of course would mostly go into the benefit of the very very wealthy but they uh, also launched a propaganda campaign via the media um that this would actually create you know hundreds of thousands of new jobs so then you can get a bunch of people who are never really going to get any significant piece of that pie behind this idea to do it because you are you know explaining to them that and convincing them that it's going to create these jobs so right. um, which is in, sort of which is a metaphor for we have to keep coal mines open for the workers yeah in the coal mines uh, even though doing that continues to be bad, we should find some other outlet. Instead, they said we're gonna we're gonna blow this asteroid, this comet into pieces. The pieces are gonna fall into the oceans, yeah, small pieces, and then we're gonna go out and mine them, collect that. Everyone is going to benefit. It's gonna be great. Yeah. So it, I, while the scientists are slapping their forehead like this is not gonna work, the world is gonna be destroyed. Yeah. The um the billionaire Peter Isherwell, um says no I, i've got this figured out it's gonna yeah. be great yeah that also reminds me of the time we you and i were talking about uh these polymetallic nodules that are just sitting at the bottom of the seat uh, of the ocean floor um and they are in this sort of what could be considered like a pristine untouched wilderness right like nobody's yep. really caring about what happens on the ocean floor at all uh until of course there's a profit to be made and then all of a sudden there is a great deal of interest in these spaces that were otherwise kind of forgotten about um so you know similarly everybody's looking at these asteroids right there are estimated to be trillions of dollars worth of these rare earth metals that are becoming increasingly scarce and difficult to obtain on earth so now asteroids are being looked at in this totally different way because they are these potential um you know uh places to make a buck yeah one of the hinge points of the movie is the billionaire says let's save the asteroid instead of blowing it up. It's yeah. very valuable. Um, and that, of course, raises all these questions of, well, who owns that stuff? Same with yeah. the ocean. Um, and there is a, a long history of law. There's the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which essentially said nations can't own these places. And then there's been a series of laws ever since then that um, that you know are under the, the heading of generally space law. There were... Laws that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. There was the Moon Treaty of 79. All of this kind of going toward the idea of nobody can claim these places as territories. We're going to share them equally. And then it's been a series of refinements of that. And, of course, not every country in the world signed on. Um, But the end result is, you know, the most recent one is something called the Space Act of 2015. Um, Technically something proposed by the United States. And... The upshot of it is countries can't own these heavenly bodies. They can't own asteroids or the moon or whatever. Um, but that because of what's sort of like a loophole, private individuals can go and mine these spaces and 
harness whatever resources are on them. So again, the, the mineral rights or whatever. So now you have this whole, again, burgeoning private industry. How do we get up there? How do we make money off of this? If you're interested in getting into the world of asteroid mining, there's actually a, a website called Asterank, which uses NASA information to um, create a list of all of these asteroids that are out there, tells you the name of the asteroid, how much it would cost to get to it, and then your estimated profit. So, for example, if you wanted to go check out Ryugu, uh, it's valued at about $82.76 billion. Uh, minus the cost of getting there, you get about $30 billion in profit. Some of them that are farther out and bigger, trillion dollars of profit or more. Um, so there, there, there's just a whole infrastructure that's coming up uh, around people being really interested in mining these things in the future. Yeah. That's how I discovered the World Space Mining Claim Registry, which is uh, a website that takes a look at all of these different asteroids out there and essentially sells plots. So there's a little picture of an asteroid and you can buy a plot for $20, $100 or whatever it is. And at some point, you can go up there and mine it. And when you do, you carry this certificate with you that shows that you have the rights to this claim. Um, this all was very interesting to me. I said, how does this work? Is this for real? Can you enforce this stuff? So I reached out to the creator of the site, a fellow by the name of Jason Parisi, um, and just asked him about it. And Stephen, would you like to hear that interview? Indeed I do. Hey there, Jason. Hi, yeah. Hey, this is Brandon. Hi, how are you? How's it going, Brandon? Thanks for your call. Good. Sure. So how did you how did you get into the space mining biz? Uh, I've always had a passion for uh, everything space related, you know, going back to a kid, being into Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, following NASA and all their exploits, being amazed by the images that Hubble could show. And I've always just been in tune with uh, space related topics. And it occurred to me one day, uh, about a year after the Space Act was uh, passed by a bipartisan Congress, uh, to actually be able to commercially exploit uh, space resources, not just asteroids, but even space resources, because you can imagine perhaps har harvesting gases as well. And so I, it, it occurred to me that there's that this had just been established, but there was no way for people, regular people, to to make a claim on this kind of material. And there's a lot of companies out there that are uh, charging forward and leading the way in developing the kind of technologies that will be responsible for getting us out there. But I thought I felt like I could play a role uh, in this, in uh, creating the first registry for people to declare that they they intend to claim something. Uh, there's a, many, many more steps before we're pulling uh, minerals from the uh, main asteroid belt. But this is like a first step. I see it almost as kind of a social movement, and I felt like this was a potential equalizer uh, in, in allowing folks from across the world to make these claims. And my idea is that sometime in the future, they could sell these claims to mining corporations and get a little something. I see the Bain asteroid belt as a birthright of all people. You know, we're all a part of this solar system. And so the WSMCR is also has a certain kind of social element to it as well. And so what does the Space Act do exactly? So... Yeah, that's worth talking about. The, the Space Act allows, it gives people the legal right to make money off of and claim uh, space resources. Now, 
the Space Act also says that the United States does not claim sovereignty over any of these areas. So this isn't a, it's not a, a, a legislation that, that uh, uh, kind of militarizes this effort. It's a commercial uh, drive. And it, and it allows for people to commercially uh, gain wealth from, from these uh, uh, space resources. Prior to this, there was just no, you could still do it, of course. So you could be a company, you could go out there and try and get materials. But in theory, perhaps a government could just seize those materials and then you're left high and dry. But this, this codified the, the right of people to be able to do this, which is uh, kind of a big deal. Talk about what makes this a potentially lucrative market. Like, what's going on there? Uh, what do these asteroids yeah. have that are valuable to us? So it's all about the rare earth elements. These are a collection of elements uh, that are, as the name implies, very rare to find here on planet Earth. And uh, there are certain countries which have a lot of them. Uh, countries like China, for instance. But uh, if you think about China's policies within the last 10 years, China has its own agendas and its own aspirations, and the, and it has even threatened to uh, choke off this supply to the rest of the world, uh, especially during the trade wars, uh, trade wars during the Trump administration. Uh, all in all, this creates an uncertain uh, outlook for the, having access to these rare earth elements. And these elements are important because they're key components of technology. Uh, if you if you went up to a materials engineer, like say someone who specializes in batteries, and you ask them, okay, how, what, what's your best battery you can produce? They'll give you an idea. But then if you told them, what's, what's the best battery you can produce made out of anything in the universe? They'd probably tell you a different answer. They would probably say, well, I'd like to ex experiment with these various elements uh, in, uh, in order to design new batteries. But no one does it because it's impossible to get these uh, elements in quantity. But the, space, the uh, asteroid mining will com com completely reverse that. And you know, there'll be an, an initial technological explosion in getting to the asteroid belt. And once we start bringing those materials back, there'll be a second one because these rare earth elements will unlock new technologies that we only dream possible in the areas of circuitry, superconduction, batteries, and who knows what else. But is it feasible to assume that, like, we can get that, that you know, interspace highway going that, that brings stuff in and I, takes I stuff think, out? Yeah, I think yeah. that it is. I think that it is because, you know, you've got, you've got the planet of Mars as a way station in, a, in, its, in itself. But I think that it'll be something of baby steps. You know, there's a whole collection of asteroids known as the near-Earth asteroids. And these will be the very first guys to be grabbed and and uh and i, I certainly think it's 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 additionally uh probably a good idea to do so because uh they're near earth <laughs> and so we don't want them slamming into earth someday so might as well just get rid of those and then there's the vastness of the main asteroid belt i mean it's a playground of minerals out there uh born in the in uh when the solar system was first formed and and have just been sitting there waiting for us ever since and so tell me about yourself are you involved in the sciences? Is this just a passion? Where do you come from? And so I, I personally have worked in the biotech industry for 20 years now. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I, I've had a technological bent my whole life, really. So it helps I, it, it helps when you're in the science industry. I'm sure it helps with uh, getting established in other uh, industries as well that have a technological bent. And so how when did you start the registry? How old is it? 
the registry was started in late 2016 um, when j the idea just occurred to me in a Thunderbolt. I was just sitting at my desk uh, at work one day, and then it occurred to me, wait, no one's doing this. And then I thought, well, I'll just be the one who does it and uh, operate on the concept of if you build it, they will come. And they have come. There's been a tremendous amount of interest. So can you give me any kind of stats? How many of these um, claims have you sold? Uh, I haven't done a recent count, but it's over 100. Uh -huh. uh, some very big ones as well. Yeah. And so how did you how did you put together the total list of asteroids and and carve them up into different claims? How did you systematize that? Right. So um, I thought about the 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 difficulty of parceling out. An asteroid, they're very irregular. And so I developed a system where uh, you could split it up into 10 square mile allotments. And in, in terms of the, the list of asteroids, I just began with uh, some of the best and most promising and largest asteroids. Uh, but anyone is welcome to approach the WSMCR and say, uh, I'm interested in this asteroid or I'm interested in this exoplanet. And, and we will... Uh, uh, enter it into the registry and uh, made it make it available for claim. Um, and th this is a very popular thing. People do this all the time. And we have uh, on the webpage we have something known as the Asterank portal. And this thing is uh, it's great. It's uh, you can uh, review uh, the entire main asteroid belt, uh, the speculated values of each asteroid, uh, its its characteristics in terms of in terms of its orbits and a closeness to Earth and size, and you can make your own uh, decisions based on what you'd like to make a claim to. And so let's talk about the legality of these claims. I mean, are they are they actionable? If someone goes out there that hasn't purchased one of these claims and mines on a spot that somebody else says is theirs, can that person who who purchased the claim take that to some kind of, is there a court for that? How does that, how does that work? So th that, that's a great question, and I think that that hits the nail on the head in terms of the core challenges for uh, for people who make claims and the the pathway going forward. Uh, there are there is no court for that. There is no international law framework for any of that. Uh, but it's my belief that it will come. And another part of you know how I mentioned the social element of the WSMCR. I believe that if enough people in a united voice, say that they believe that they have that claim and they want to act, actualize it, that becomes a, a, a mass. You know, there's a certain power to the people. If, if so many people are, have an idea and they want it to be so, there, there, uh, there's a, that's just the way uh, life works, that things become grandfathered into reality. Um, I like to think about the Homestead Act days. I don't know if you're familiar with the birth of the United States and the history of all that, but in the old days, um, there was these vast territories, you know, uh, claimed by the United States in the West, and um, and they were and the United States at the time was mostly clustered to the East Coast, and so there was an interest in uh, getting the manifest destiny going and getting people out there to to colonize those areas. And, and the law basically was, here's the territory, stake your claim, once you do so, it's yours. 
we already have a pre-existing legal uh, uh, history of this kind of ambiguous circumstance. I view uh, asteroids in the same way as these territories that used to be. Like, for instance, Oklahoma and Kansas, all these vast areas. And during those Homestead Act days, uh, all you'd have to do is race out there, plant, uh, plant your stakes, and then that's that's your ter- that's your homestead that's yours, and you don't have to own, you don't have to pay anyone anything for it. You don't have to do anything about it. It's yours legally. And then that's and then once states were formed, uh, these were formed around those claims, pre-existing claims, and so that that kind of le- legal ambiguity turning into legal certitude is what I'm trying to push towards. But you know, like if if China sends out you know, an entire army of miners to a certain place, then it's sort of you versus China or that person who owns the claim versus China at that point, I guess. In other words, you know, like right. in the United but, States, in the United States, it was like, well, it's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of random colonists who are heading out West. And, and so you only sort yeah. of have one nation that's everybody's squabbling, but it's just for sure. Than for that. sure. Uh, so, so the, the, now this, the, uh, I mean, as time goes on and more people and pe- people start going out there, uh, other you know nations will will start to talk about this and they'll start to hammer out a framework. And I guess it could go either of two ways. It could go through into a confrontation zone where the space just becomes another war zone. But I don't think that's going to happen because the prize for reaching the Astro Belt is too great to let alone. And, and to prove my point that people can achieve this kind of cooperation, just look at the oil markets. The oil markets are one of the most central uh, commodities in the world right now. Um, and and there's, it's an entire cartel. I mean, all, all, all oil companies, uh, all oil nations, more or less, cooperate with each other in order to maintain a steady level of profit margin for that industry. And so I see the same thing happening in space with the uh, mining of rare earth elements. So, yeah, just the last thing to clarify. On your FAQ, it says the claims will say novelty item or gift. Will that compromise in some way the legitimacy of the claim? It's a legal protection I have to deal with. I, I've consulted with lawyers on, on the on the notion, and, and they suggested that this was a, uh, something worth doing. Because <laughs> you don't want to... I. Uh, I don't want the WSMCR to seem like it's a affiliated with the government uh, in any way. That would that would be something very illegal. Uh, I'm not trying to do that. And so there you go. It is a wild, weird, interesting place. It could be sort of the Wild West. Oh, it is the Wild West. A number of different issues come up for me. Like one of them being, you know, like that that whole sort of conceit that you are going to will things into reality that's sort of like what what it comes back to so you're asking these questions like well can any of this stuff hold up like what what what's really you know what's stopping someone from just like not honoring one of these claims and in his he's kind of continues to go back into this thing saying oh well you know if if enough people believe in it and if we all start doing it then it's going to kind of will itself into into being a real thing uh, it, that's like the land rush. I mean, I think like the land rush in Oklahoma was an example that he gave. And I think that's true. Like if someone says all of this can be yours and enough people push it, yeah. it becomes 
the the way of things. Whether that's right or wrong, yeah. uh, history, of course, shows that that, that can be extremely yeah. fraught. Or, but or and or NFTs, you know, I mean, whatever. Let's all believe that yeah. you know the 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 pixels, you know, are worth money, and if enough people are say it's worth money and they're willing to both sell and buy them then you know it's real like that's that is yeah. something yeah but it still seems like a, i mean speculative at its i mean the definition of speculative absolutely. absolutely well and two it's based on a similar idea to what we were talking about earlier where if enough people believe in a thing then that tends to shape the story yeah and that's the way things are going if enough people believe in climate change and take action, then that becomes the order. If enough mm-hmm. people don't, then that's the way. Yeah. So this idea of like reiterating stories that then become the new order, yeah. rather than you know, let's all weigh the moral and ethical implications in advance and then see what happens. This is sort of like, well, this seems like an idea. Let's try and see if it catches on. Yeah, and if it does, I, then that was the right thing to do. There is an ethical component there about like taking people's money for something that might be worthless, though. I mean that 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 that. They, it could be effectively worthless and if they're not honored and then you're basically saying well and again you know any kind of pressing it's like well you know if we all just got to believe in this thing and it'll, then it'll be real it's like okay that's a bit flimsy but yeah the idea that nobody can own space but people can go out there and with their pick and start banging away on some space rock and see what comes up and then come up with you know uh, and then go sell those materials to apple yeah. for the next iteration of the iphone yeah that's the future yeah it is the future and i wonder if our fascination with this off-world idea um it is really connected right now like a psychological collective psychological response also to this feeling that the world is ending Right? Like, if we really look at it, we're entering into 2022. This pandemic started in 2020. Like, there, we've all been through so much. Yeah, absolutely. And so, the, the, in the background of it all is, like, this impending sense of doom. And and so, we want to leave. We want to go. We're like, hey, we gotta, we're hedging our bets. Like, we, we, like, that seems to be a great... And talk about story. That is a big story we're all telling, we're being told and that we're participating in. I think there's another side to that, which is why are people interested in mining asteroids? Well, opportunities on Earth are sort of drying up. Yeah. So, there is that sense of just like with the Sooners rushing out to stake their claims in the land rush in Oklahoma... Um, that idea too, like we have to get out of here. We have to go to the next frontier. We have to find the thing that's out there that will give us wealth and stability and prosperity because everything is spoken for here. Yeah. But the, the subtext of the movie is, oh, if the billionaire gets there first and he's just going to own it all and we'll get, you know, the scraps of that. But we're not in control of our destiny. Yeah. And, and, And one last bit about that too is, uh, I, I think this notion that we invented something as a species, you know, as technologically advanced as, you know, the iPhone and all of these different, like, sort of uh, pieces of technology that require, you know, this unimaginable uh, processing speed that I guess can only really be in power um, sources that can only really be delivered by these rare earth metals. It's kind of crazy that we came up with something like that. It's like, well, the stuff to power it is way... It's very scarce. It's way in these hard-to-reach places on Earth. But once you know it, the universe is all made up of the same darn stuff, and this also exists 
like in these far flung places like the asteroid belt and we have to use the same technology yeah i think that the future is somewhere else i think that is a conception that we sort of have right yeah. like the present is a bummer total bummer for all of these reasons it is right? a bummer isn't it been a bummer I mean, yeah um, so yeah, the idea that the future is somewhere else, um, is sort of not hard to, to imagine, you know, everything's, everything's busted here. Yeah. And let's go somewhere else. Yeah. Let's, I mean, you know, and I think the antidote for that in some ways has been to, uh, make our worlds smaller, like here on earth, you know, our worlds, our social circles, our family circles, like kind of the things that matter, um, at least for me, this has been helpful. I, I've just I find my world to be a bit smaller than it was even three years ago. Um, I kind of have a smaller group of friends. I, I sort of a, a allow myself to worry about fewer things. I focus on like a, a, the, the things that really matter. Um, and I think that to tying this back to the film, uh, a really great thing the film does is. Uh, kind of hit that note of what's really important uh this idea of family this idea of of being close to those who matter most to you in the face of great and existential you know danger and c catastrophe i think that happens in the movie in that last scene which you know that i particularly like quite a bit yeah it does seem like okay you've put this film together you're not going to blink from ending the world because you have the alternative of like somehow we'll save the world, everybody'll be okay. Yeah. And and you can still pull a satire out of that if everyone's just a moron that learns nothing from it and you know, we continue to bumble along. Yeah. Um you could do that, uh, but he's not gonna do that. So okay, then there is this moment in a satire, any satire, I think, where where you have to attempt to stick this transition between the joke that you're making, and this moment of sincerity. Yeah. A satire doesn't have to do it, and it can be kind of black all the way through. Yeah. But I think there there is a moment where you have an opportunity to kind of put that aside and say, there are things that really matter about the nature of being human and whatever those things are. And the problem is that if you risk sincerity in a comedy, and in particular satire, it can blow up in your face. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you couldn't commit to this concept. You were so you were being so cool about making fun of everybody, but now in the moment you can't. Now there's this weird like hallmark moment. Yeah, I I don't think, right. and I think that they do. Uh, I think they do stick the landing quite well in this film, and uh, it's that this scene where the asteroid is impend is sort of is the the impact is imminent it's happening party's over it, it, the streets are looted everybody's kind of the world's going crazy and so what are the main characters that we've been following throughout the the film do they they go into they go to the scientist the the head scientist leonardo dicaprio's character's house and he reconciles with his wife and his family because he had had a affair throughout the course of the movie and then it's um Everybody that again, everybody we've followed is now around this uh, this kitchen sort of a uh, hearth like atmosphere of of togetherness and 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 it all just hit me so hard because that's exactly like my kind of party is is sort of people cooking and drinking and 
folks showing up late with a you know armful of booze and that 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 whole they just capture such this like slice of life moment in the midst of this like insane uh ending to this film it got me thinking all sorts of stuff about the holidays and and, and how um it is truly a time where we're all meant to be together and and a thing that i personally like doing a lot is uh cooking um i've i've always liked to cook during the pandemic specifically i kind of went into an overdrive in terms of my will to cook and to figure out new stuff. And um, so I thought it would be kind of neat to do a bit of uh, service journalism here. It is time for the journos cooking segment. Introducing journos eats a delightfully tasty new segment from the people who brought you journos. What did you have in mind? Oh, uh, well, you know, uh, times are times are tight for lots of people, so it's always nice to have a good meal in your back pocket uh, that doesn't cost a lot, that can feed a lot of people, that you can also make pretty um, easily, and uh, you don't have to um, put too too much thought into it. You can feed a big again. You can have folks over. It makes the makes the kitchen smell real nice. Um, great for leftovers. So the world is ending. Yes. The comment is coming down. Yeah. You don't have a ton of time. You don't have a ton of time. Put something together, but you want to make sure that the last meal that your loved ones yeah, has exactly. is something that's filling. Yes. It's satisfying, it's tasty. And it's something that you don't want to have to concentrate on too much because you want to spend those last precious moments with your loved ones, talking, laughing, drinking. You want to be and able you to- don't have you don't have to worry about cleanup. Yeah. Yeah. Screw the cleanup. World's yeah, over. So is this a messy? Is this a messy prep? Not particularly. So uh, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you folks how to uh, make um, a white wine chicken sort of um, just just a really easy white wine chicken garlic parsley dish. Um, yeah, there are many variations on this dish uh, that, that you can find. Um, I'm gonna be kind of. Uh, uh, referencing a great recipe from Tante Maria Marie's Kitchen, um, who is uh, the person behind that is San Francisco chef Mary S. Risley. Here's the chicken recipe. What you're gonna do is you're gonna go to the store and you're gonna get a bunch of chicken thighs. Okay, chicken thighs are really the best because they um, they're just juicier, they're cheap, and they're more flavorful. So get a whole mess of chicken thighs, right? You take those out of the packet. You're gonna them as dry as you can pat them real dry pat them real dry set them aside okay then what you're gonna do is get a pan a big pan that you can put a lid on but like one of those like it should be over a foot you know like maybe even two feet in diameter you know one of these huge pans that you can put a lid on maybe 18 inches then you're gonna put a bunch of oil down on the pan okay you're gonna get that kind of hot and you're nice thing is when I went and got the oil, yeah. there was such chaos in the supermarket because nobody cared anymore. Yeah. I got the really good stuff. Ooh, yeah. And so yeah. the thing is you don't necessarily want to do olive oil here. What you want to do here is you want to get some grapeseed oil or canola yeah, which oil. I never would have gotten You want to get a neutral oil because it has a higher smoke point and it's not going to mess with the flavors of your food. Sure. Okay. We're going to use a little bit of olive oil later. Anyway, ah. so you got your chicken thighs. They're drying out. You heat up the pan, okay, with that neutral oil. You're going to put those chicken thighs all in there, all skin side down, okay? And just let it kind of rip for a bit. Season with salt and pepper at this point, mostly salt. Really get that skin super crispy on the bottom. So you're going to let that go, okay? At this point, maybe add a little bit of olive oil for taste on the chicken. 
All right. Next thing you're going to do is you're going to uh, flip that chicken again. Okay, so you're going to flip the chicken, and uh, you're going to start cooking it from the other from the other side up. Okay. Mince up a bunch of garlic. A lot of these, uh, also a lot of this stuff you can kind of do by eye, by sort of eye and feel. Like there's not a, I'm not going to tell you six cloves of garlic. Take a whole bunch of garlic and now put it in to the olive oil or, or into the, your oil. You want to do this now because the olive oil isn't going to burn. So you got your chicken going. It's now been flipped. Next thing you're going to do is you're going to pour uh, about a cup or about a ha- cu- half cup to a cup of chicken stock in there. You're also going to pour, uh, I don't know, probably about like a third of a bottle of red wine, uh, of white wine, maybe like a half to a third. Get a bunch of wine in there, pour it in there, start cooking that thing, okay? I took a whole case from the store. Yes. Nobody cared. Uh, it was, there was definitely a run on booze. I'm definitely store. all about also mm-hmm. take, take that half bottle of wine, drink the rest for sure. Yeah. Whatever you don't put into the chicken, drink yeah. out of the bottle in the kitchen. So that's all going. You put the you, then you put the lid on, okay. At this point, what I want you to do is also get a thing of Israeli couscous, just right out of the box. Start preparing that on the side. Get that kind of going. Just follow the instructions on the box. Don't use the seasoning. Just make the couscous. All right. So that's going. After- Speaking of Israel, at this moment in Jerusalem, people are gathered around praying, looking up at the heavens, ah. awaiting the end. Yeah. That's probably what's going on. I'm just sort of thinking about what, who, how everybody else is occupying what, their what's time happening at this moment. What's while the you're, yeah, intercut in the, in the script. What's intercut shots of as I'm mm-hmm. making my yeah. chicken? We have, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, people in the desert looking up the shepherd, and the yeah, uh, uh, yeah he, he has the little hook, and like the moon is perfectly uh, mm-hmm. uh, framed in the framed, hook. Yeah. So then, uh, so you're putting in gar. So maybe you put a little bit more garlic. You're kind of still putting in a bunch of other, um, you know, seasoning as you see fit. You open that thing, right? It's going to be smelling really good at this point, right? Because it has a nice kind of interesting gamey white wine flavor. Oh, just take it in. Next thing I want you to do is get a bunch of uh, uh, green olives and uh, or capers, whichever you prefer, and then throw those in there, right? Put the lid back on. Make sure this chicken is getting cooked all the way through, all the way through. So you're kind of steaming it in the stock and the white wine and there's garlic and there's olives and everything's happening. At right near the end, as the, now the couscous is getting ready to be done, open up that thing, throw in a bunch of parsley. Okay? Oh. Yeah. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Soon. Throw in a bunch of parsley. You kind of like swirl it all around. At this point, your white wine chicken stock thing should be like a bit reduced. Lastly, I want you to squeeze a couple lemon, some lemon juice in there. Again, kind of like up to you exactly what you want to do. You could do a little zest. You could just do the lemon juice, whatever. Final little lid. Just kind of get all those flavors working around together. Turn off the heat. Done. Put out a bed of couscous. Put the chicken and olive mixture over the couscous. You got yourself a meal. That sounds wonderful. That sounds absolutely wonderful. You gather around the table. You can look out the dining room window and see the neighbors just fornicating in the streets. Yeah. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It's just like it's 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 half bacchanal, half the purge, depending yeah. on like what part of the city you're in. Yeah. Um, I like it. It's hard. It sounds hearty. Yeah. Uh, you can you can definitely. It's a shared meal. Yep. Effect. I like a good shared meal. Totally. You know, and then you know style. maybe make some broccolini on the side with just you know, steamed broccolini or something like that. It's really it's really really good. So um, and, and with that we will conclude 
uh, the first Journos uh, cooking segment. That was great. Hey, thanks. That sounded delicious. Thank you for humoring me with that. Um, you know, there's a lot more where that came from. Here you are out there interviewing these asteroid miners doing real journalism. And then I'm I'm sitting here being like, oh, I put something together too. It's a chicken recipe. I'm going to rattle off the top of my head. <laughs> I think that what works about us is that we think of the mind and the body Indeed. and we integrate those impulses. Yes. We feed the mind. We feed the body. Yes. Uh, and the, the things that are important, um, they sort of converge in some ways around the dinner table. Indeed. And that uh, is, is, again, how this film that we started off the episode with ends. Uh, it, it ends with these folks in the, in, in, in the world is literally shaking and trembling with the, you know, the kind of earthquakes and tsunamis that are about to sort of take out um, the, the, the planet. And yeah, that was an interesting effect, right? The comet hit. We see the comet. It strikes the Earth and it precipitates the shock wave that we all know. That's moving outward, moving outward, moving outward. Yeah. Rather than it just being a flash and everything's over, it's like no, there's there are signs of it. Yeah, uh, and that's how it would really be. I mean, and, yeah. and that, it, it is very realistic in that it's not like the comet hits unless you're right there by the impact. It's like the comet hits, and then there's this like weird. 30 minutes left on earth yeah yeah i think that's that's to me the most fascinating thing i um i have my complaints about american cinema in general as i think we all as i think we all do yeah and particularly the way comedy is is executed and it and it tends to be that american comedy kind of historically is pretty overt like we have uh a kind of lack of subtlety about these things. Like we're afraid of committing to nuance. We're afraid of, you know, um, uh, going for the kind of darker finding humor and sadness, these kind of things. I mean, this is a disaster movie, but it's, you know, it's big and it's loud and, and, you know, it's, and it's overt. And, um, and I think that would be fine. I, I, I don't know. I'll have to see it again. I don't know that I think this is, his best movie overall. Um, but I do think that that moment at the end, he, he, tr he kind of transcends. There's, I think there's a, there's a, I see, um, I see an evolution of his art and there's, there's a moment that is reached right in the last moments that, um, that I found really profound in a way that I think, um, is closer to, you know, theater or, or something that's more out of you know uh, an existential film from you know the new the French New Wave or mm -hmm. something, and it's they've all made their food. They've had the the scene of cooking and all that, and now they're all sitting down and they're eating. We've seen them eating, and the shockwave is imminent, and the walls are shaking, the windows are rattling, the the table and all the cups and saucers and things are all shaking, and they are all continuing to have. This conversation that has now become just dinner table chit chat about preferring, you know, store bought pie over home. Oh yeah, yeah. It's the that banality, right? Mm -hmm. It's it, that, yeah, that just just struck chat. us both. Just chat. And and what I like about it is that it's clear that everyone at the table is hearing the end coming for them, but they're putting on a brave face and they're pretending that everything is normal. Yeah. And to me that was just it, the the combination of like 
being brave, not for yourself, because if any of them had been alone, they would have succumbed to their feelings. But instead, they were being brave for everyone else. Like, like we had bu- they had built this society around the dinner table, and they were committed to protecting it. They were committed to preserving the idea of this is the family unit, and I'm not going to do something to scare you because I want you to feel safe. I want us to continue to preserve this idea that that there is a society and that there is these things going on. And I really could have had a whole movie of that. Yeah. Like just people trying to be normal as stuff collapses around them. You know, I think that that to me, there is just this the comedy is not this overt thing. It's not like the TV show host saying, are there aliens in space when the scientist is trying to explain that the world's going to end? That's kind of this overt humor. This is this very subtle thing where the humor is the humor is in the sadness of it. It's in the idea that there's something really brave about this. And and that's the absurdity of, of those final moments of it, which, which really spoke to me and to me, I think. Um, and I think that's, I, I saw McKay's work reach a new level in that moment. That is very cool. And I, I think that there, it, it, there is this wonderful bit of existential theater there in, in that, um, it it shows people right up against the reality of their own death, and um, you know there is that it's central to all, all existential thought is um, that notion that um, the the world um, essentially there's this idea that we and this is going to be drawing on some Heideggerian thinking. Uh, he, Martin Heidegger is a philosopher I'm quite fond of. Uh, he they talk a lot about this this sort of progression to an authentic life and what it means to truly allow the the mystery of being in the world and what the world has to offer to really like reveal itself okay and so like humans we are according to these folks or or heidegger kind of walking through life in this inauthentic way where we're not truly uh wrapping our heads around or experiencing or embracing this like uh, existential mystery and beauty that's inside of us and in the world all around us. And there are many ways to sort of op- approach authenticity. But one of the most important uh, mechanisms for doing so to approach authenticity is to come face to face with the reality of your own death. And once you understand and once you really truly feel and understand that you will die, it's one of the, f- the most important things you need to do in order to truly start living right and so there's a really famous heidegger quote where he was giving this lecture in 1961 and someone asked him how could they live a better life how could they be more authentic and then he said uh we should simply aim to spend more time in graveyards um and i think that part a lot of the beauty of that final scene I think is an expression of this idea that face to face with your with our own death, um, we we can kind of truly be alive, and I think that's a great message to take away from that. Um, it made me also think of this other thought I had the other day when I was surfing, and I was kind of having this like cool like sort of meditative zeny moment uh, in the water, and uh, you know when when one does that, they sort of fo- you 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 focus on your breathing. Right, that's a big thing in meditation and mindfulness. Is I'm try I always try to do that. To that's how I'm calming all my anxieties. Is I do these breathing exercises and such. And I was wondering, I was like, why? Why is that always a thing? Why is it always you got to focus on your breath, right? And the reason I came up with is like, well, your breath 
is the constant thing that's happening your entire life that literally keeps you alive. As long as you're alive, you're breathing, and it's something that's just always happening. Without that, you got nothing. So focusing on the very baseline of existence is like the fact that you're breathing air. And then that made me think, wow, that's crazy. Because if you were to stop breathing for like, what is it, three, four minutes, you die. So that means effectively every single moment of your life, you're like three minutes away from dying. You're three minutes away from death 100% of the time. And so by like realizing that, it kind of makes you understand the power and how the magic of like, you know, each, each present moment. I like that. I feel like there could be a rejection of science at some point in the future where somebody will argue that. Somebody will say, I don't know that you need to breathe. And oh. then you'll have a bunch of people who are just holding their breath yeah, until they pass Yeah, until out. they die. Yeah. The, an- the anti-aspirationalists. Yeah, the the, anti- <laughs> the anti-respirationalists. The anti-respirationalists. Yeah. It's anti-respiratory mm-hmm. thought. The anti-respiratory thought, yeah. I mean, if we've got a flat earth, then we must yeah. have people well, who there's are like, breathari- nah. there are breatharians, I'm oh, pretty there are sure. Breatharians. Yeah. yeah, and they breathe too much. And then they pass out too. You end up in the same way. <laughs> extremes are extremes are bad. But anyway, yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting. And I think that's the big existential trip is that people look at existentialism and say, oh, it's so dark. It's so brooding. It's so yada, yada, yada. But the truth is, is that it's about, it's about realizing that inherent sort of meaninglessness to find that meaning. It's about understanding the sort of void beyond and like really – you know, taking hold of your own life. And again, I think that's a great message in this movie that we're watching. And the movie came out, it didn't get released in a vacuum. It got released in December 2021, you know, a year and a half into some of the most difficult time that as a world, as a collective species, we've ever been through. Um, and, you know, as we're wrapping up the year and, you know, we're kind of going into this weird nether space of holiday season where it's not really as safe as everybody thought it was going to be, it kind of, again, brings up these feelings of being right up against um, our own mortality, you know? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that. As much as this is overtly about climate change particularly with that with that scene at the dinner table and the idea of people trying to pretend to be normal it it really resonated with oh yeah and also a pandemic where it, which is this slow rolling and sometimes very fast rolling disaster that we're all also living through and trying to figure out you know should i get on a plane should i go sit down at dinner with my family should you know reckoning with all of these all of these questions of of value and you know what's important what's not um, you know, and now here we are with a new wave of the pandemic that will potentially once again shift, you know, the way cities work, the way yeah. states work. The holidays are going to be inflected by it. And it's something that continues to change day in and day out. And so, you know, I think that's as much as it's about climate change, it's also about kind of the way we live now and whether things will ever go back to being the way they were before. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think that's the idea that the future is somewhere else is true also in the sense that we're never going to go back to the way things were. No. Regardless of the pandemic, climate change is going to continue to accelerate 
these alterations to our daily lives and to every aspect of, of how civilization works. So, you know, you can sort of look for answers uh, off-world or here or whatever it is. And I think that's, you know, the subtext of all of these kinds of disaster movies. Zombie movies are the same way. And, you know, there's a show out now on HBO Max called Station Eleven, based on the book Station Eleven, um, which is, you know, uh, a, a disease ravages the world. And here we are years later. Here's what's going on. These bands of survivors. You know, all of that, again, is is the idea that things are changing Things are changing. Things are changing. Yeah. And and we're trying to figure out just how to be people in them when you kind of move these variables around. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so one of the things is like, well, you become more savage. You become a survivalist. And, you know, the road uh, is, is a good example of like everyone has descended to the most base state and trying to find food and shelter, um, you know, and then build a society out of that maybe. And, you know, so so those stories, I think, are really wild and kind of come come back to the idea you're talking about of like well what are the values that are important what are the ones that yeah. that we carry forward for mckay for don't look up it's you know at the end of the day we may not be able to change the course of the climate or get all of these industries all these governments on board to yeah. make the drastic change that's needed um and so again like his his moment of shifting over and hoping people follow him for that is like, well, at the end of the day, it's, you we, know. All we got is each other. It's a nice break from the political talk. Yeah, just remind everybody that they can't be an authentic human until they fully and wholly realize that their time is short and that death is imminent at all times. Boy, that is. And hopefully you've got a delicious slab of chicken in front of you yeah, that you can enjoy. that dark meat thigh. Ooh, with the white oh, wine and the yeah. olives or the capers and the parsley. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And, oh, by the way, uh, garnish with some parsley on the top. You know why? Sure. Because sure. you, you eat with your eyes. <laughs> this has been Journos. This has been Journos. Thank you for joining us. This is Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears.